This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 114, the fourth part of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. This episode will share surprising stories about races in the 1800s that were disrupted in odd ways by fans among the tens of thousands of spectators who would come to watch and, in a way, participate. I put on a 100-mile and 50-mile race each year on the historic Pony Express Trail in the West Desert of Utah, truly still the Wild West, still with wild horses, antelope, and other critters. Come meet me and join in the fun on October 14, 2022. Visit PonyExpress100.org for all the information and to register. That's PonyExpress100.org. Today's ultras usually have few disruptions from outsiders or spectators. The most serious disturbances are typically from people who take down course flagging, which can cause runners to go off course, potentially putting them in serious danger. But during the era of ultra running more than 120 years ago, with thousands of spectators watching exhausted runners go in circles for six days, strange disruptions were commonplace. During high-profile races, squads of policemen were required to keep the order. This is the fourth episode of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. In 1879, at Canarsie, Brooklyn, New York, an indoor six-day walking competition was taking place between five walkers in front of a nice crowd at Lehman's Hotel. The event was going along fine until two well-known local men entered the room, John Wilson and Alec Fisher. At the time, most of the competitors were off-track, sleeping, and so were many of the spectators in their seats snoring away. It was reported. Wilson jumped on the track and commenced breaking it up, while Fisher went around the room upsetting the benches on which were the sleeping Canarsiites. One of the walkers, Clinton Drake, requested Wilson to desist from breaking up the track, whereupon Wilson caught Drake by the shoulders, shook him, and threatened to throw him out the window. Wilson broke the track up to such an extent that it became necessary to stop the walk. The two men were arrested by a constable. Also in 1879, a contest in the Industrial Art Building in Philadelphia experienced many disruptions. Melville B. Apgar of New York City, who fought in the Civil War as an underage infantryman, was in the lead on day four of a six-day race when an incident ruined his race. He was going around at a fair gate when a drunken man came on the track and the acting referee Jones ordered him off. He refused to go and a scuffle ensued, during which the drunken man fell against Apgar as he was passing and knocked him down. Apgar tried to continue for several more miles, but his knee had been sprained and he had to withdraw from the race. Apgar and his friends criticized the race management, and one of them, Clark, 
made a very inflammatory speech about the terrible treatment received. He was instantly surrounded by a crowd and cries of, put him out and kill him and the like were freely used and a rush was made. The race manager asked the police to kick Clark out of the building, which they did. Rumors circulated that there were further threats against Apgar and his friends from John Comber's notorious Reading Hose Gang. The gangs were legendary, and the penny press of the day gave them names and covered their rumbles with glee. There were Bowery Boys and Broadway Boys, Carrionians and Chichesters, the Plug Uglies, and the Dead Rabbits. A large police force of officers was brought in to prevent any more disturbances. But still, Trix Muldoon, a member of the gang, stole a cornet from a musician who was playing in the band during the event. The Reading Hose Gang was an infamous group of ruffians that made their headquarters near the Reading Railroad Depot. Over the years, several murderers were traced to the gang, along with many arrests for other crimes. Night after night, citizens were beaten, robbed, and left lying in the street. It took many years for the authorities to break up this gang. A similar disturbance occurred that same year during a walking exhibition at Oriton Hall in Newark, New Jersey. Josie Wilson, the Jersey Peach Blossom, was seeking to walk 3,000 quarter miles in 3,000 quarter hours. She was described as, quote, 20 years old, comely, blue-eyed, brown-haired, plump in form, and modest in deportment. After reaching 2,700 quarter miles in front of several hundred people, it was announced that admission would be free the next day. There was so much interest in the free tickets on that Sunday that the people were asked to take turns viewing in half-hour shifts. A few gentlemen quitted the hall, but the majority refused to go. Meantime, the crowd outside struggled to get in. A rush was made, the street doors were burst open, and a howling mob surged up the stairway. The two policemen there were quickly overwhelmed and brushed aside. A crowd of roughs entered the hall and refused to leave and make room for others. There was a row, which caused wild excitement. Oaths, curse, and blows followed. A telegraph was sent asking for more police. As Miss Wilson finished a lap, she became terribly frightened and nervous because of the unruly crowd. Several ruffians began quarreling near the track. She trembled violently, and her face became white with fear. The next second, she fell in a dead faint on the track. She was carried to her room and placed on a lounge. In another minute, she was seized by an epileptic fit. A squad of eight police soon appeared, but the trouble was over. The chief of police ordered that the exhibition be closed. Practically, this was done already, for Miss Wilson, upon reaching her quarters, swooned away, and two physicians were called to attend her. It was said to be a matter of life and death, and her trainer therefore requested the audience to retire. In a few minutes, the hall was cleared. It took the doctors an hour before they could bring Miss Wilson back to consciousness. She would go on to compete in just one more event. The 
The pedestrian events were so popular in New York City that those who did not have the means to pay the admission fee would try all sorts of ways to get in for free. Tickets at the time were counterfeited, but crashing the gate was the most common approach. In 1879, as midnight approached during the third Astley Belt race, a gang of gate crashers used a beam of wood as a battering ram to break down a door to get in the building. Police eventually rounded them up, arrested them, took them out of the building, beat them, and then let them go. Teenaged boys would gate crash events by climbing up pipes through high windows and later causing disruptions. During an 1882 race in New York, a group of boys started fighting among themselves right on the track. The police eventually caught them and evicted them from the building. The gate crashing technique was sometimes enhanced by the use of a rope that was let down from one of the round windows up under the eaves of the south side of Madison Square Garden. The rope was rather short for the purpose, and it was necessary to raise the candidate several feet from the sidewalk before he could catch hold of the end. When he had secured a firm hold and had been given word, he was slowly hauled up inch by inch till his heels disappeared through the window. Boy after boy was laboriously drawn up in this way. There were cheers loud and prolonged as each boy accomplished the ascent and the commotion drew a crowd. At an 1884 race at Madison Square Garden, the crowds who wanted to enter were huge. Many brought their lunches to stand in line for hours until the doors were opened. Outside the garden, the sights were as remarkable as they were inside. Fully 1,000 men and boys surrounded the building last evening, howling at every new score sheet displayed and waiting for a chance to crawl in through the open windows. As policemen were distracted chasing a crowd of boys down 4th Avenue, someone inside let a clothesline down from one of the portholes and 12 boys climbed up, hand over hand, to the roof and mingled with the multitudes inside. Planks and barrels were taken from an adjoining car yard to aid in the assault on the admission fee. The most violent known incident of gate crashing occurred during the third Astley Belt race in New York City in 1879. When the first mile was announced on the blackboard with a time of 9 minutes 25 seconds, the cheering was deafening. Those who were left outside the building heard the roar. The outside crowd turned into an angry mob and rushed for the entrance, overwhelming the two policemen out there broke down the door of its hinges and pushed into the building. A dozen policemen inside rushed to meet the mob, including police captain Alexander Clubber Williams, who was known for his brutality. Then occurred one of the liveliest scrimmages seen in New York for a long time. The police used their clubs freely, and the blows fell thick and fast at random. This harsh usage was effectual, and the mob was driven clear of the building. The sound of the heavy blows rained upon the defenseless heads and bodies of the unfortunates, who happened to be in the front ranks, was sickening. The riot that issued was not only because the crowd was denied entry, but also because of the police brutality that injured 70 people and sent them to the hospital. Rocks were thrown at the windows of the building, breaking at least one, and some climbed onto the roof. Police patrol lines were eventually established so that nobody could approach within a block of the garden. 
Those inside the building didn't dare to venture out among the angry thousands. After two hours, the outside crowd finally dispersed. A bizarre incident took place during the fifth athlete belt race in Madison Square Garden in 1879. As George Hazel from London, England, and Sam Merritt of Bridgeport, New Jersey were walking around the track, a brick fell between the two, just four feet behind Hazel. Police accused and arrested Ephraim Holland of Cincinnati, Ohio, for throwing the missile to disrupt Hazel's race. Holland was a notorious figure linked to election corruption, stuffing a ballot box with 300 fraudulent votes, and gambling fraud. He had served time in a prison, but had been pardoned by President Rutherford B. Hayes for political reasons. At a trial held the next day in the Jefferson Market Police Court, New York, as the race continued, Holland showed up, quote, a middle-aged man well-dressed and wore a brownish mustache. Unfortunately, Frank Creamer of Williamsburg, New York, the witness of the throwing of the stone, failed to appear for some reason. Another witness, Otto Letcher, did sign an affidavit charging Holland with the assault. Holland's lawyer asked for a dismissal because there was no evidence that the missile was aimed at Hazel. But the prosecution maintained that for 36 hours, Holland had been trying to injure Hazel because he had heavily wagered on the order of the finishers and Hazel was doing too well. Hazel's trainer testified, He tried to get into Hazel's tent and add his food and was driven away. He had been warned that Holland would try to put drugs in Hazel's food. Holland yelled, I never threw that stone. Officer McCoy was put on the stand and testified that Holland was about 15 feet from the track and he had seen the brick pass over the heads of the crowd and by several ladies and then rebound on the track. Letcher, the complaining witness, testified he saw Holland's arm raised as if to throw something and immediately afterward the stone fell. But the second witness was needed to convict, and he still didn't show up. Ephraim Holland left the court with a crowd of sporting men who shook him by the hand and expressed their conviction that Ephraim could not have committed the act. Holland himself stoutly denied the throwing of the stone and claimed that he was the victim of a mistake. Holland continued in his corruption activities. The following year, he was shot in the thigh on the streets of Cincinnati in a gambling dispute. He finally met his demise in 1887 at the age of 51, thought to be caused by the continued problems from the pistol ball wound in his thigh. He had been credited for establishing the largest gambling house ever run in the country up to that point. There were many other disruptions on the track. Sometimes wealthy spectators would cause a welcome distraction for the runners. They would throw money on the track in front of a group of runners on watch with amusements as the contestants sprinted to go secure the prize. Those who had wagers on the results were so intense that sometimes they assaulted scorers if they thought that they were shortchanging their runner of laps. This took place in 1882 in Madison Square Garden. A scorer named Roberts was attacked by an angry mob at 3 a.m. It was reported, 
Lenny and this crowd were intoxicating and insulting. They accused him of putting up the wrong figures, being unable to quietly rest under these aspirations upon his character. Roberts descended the ladder from the platform where he was on duty and undertook to reason with the excited men. They pitched upon him and beat him unmercifully. The police officers were at the other end of the garden, and the ruffians only stopped impounding Roberts when they were satisfied with their work. Roberts retired but returned to his scoring work the next day with, quote, a bruised head and discolored eyes. Scores did make mistakes and had to be watched closely. In another race, an amateur athlete was keeping score on Robert Vint's score dial and gave him an extra mile. This was discovered by a young man in charge of the official score sheet. Yeah, my bad. Because it was a second time this guy made the mistake, the dial turner was fired. Angry mobs were a fear to those who officiated these races. In 1880 in England, during a 50-mile walking match held in the Agricultural Hall of London, the referee George W. Atkinson was brutally assaulted by a mob for disqualifying a walker named Jack Hibbert after repeated warnings about his walking method. The police were called upon to give Mr. Atkinson safe conduct from the building. He was attacked merely for daring to assert the rights of his office. For a time, the police kept them at bay, but finally the mob broke in, took possession of the track, and surrounded the referee, who was threatened with annihilation. One ruffian struck the referee on the head, whereupon the police came to the rescue, and no further violence was offered. One rascal tried to throw down another walker, and fights followed. Atkinson gave orders for the race to be stopped, because it was impossible to clear the course, and let the walkers compete safely. During a six-day race at Madison Square Garden in 1891, a detained man broke out of a nearby building, rushed into the garden, and started to run around the track. On his third lap, he was finally arrested, taken to the police station, and later sent to Bellevue Hospital. In 1888, a one-legged boy of 14 years came out on the Madison Square Garden track. The cripple refused to leave the path of the men, and when the policemen attempted to take him out of the garden, the boy fought them using his crutch as a weapon. The rebellious lad was locked up. In that same race, there were bigger disturbances. A general fight among a lot of men who gathered on the track opposite Peter Golden's booth was created. There was a little clubbing by policemen and pummeling by combatants, but no arrests were made, although some men were fired out of the building. Another kamalyi occurred in the big ballroom during the morning hours, but there were no casualties. Even women at times caused disturbances. Two loudly dressed women engaged in a fight in a box that distracted attention from contestants until they were ejected. Oddly, during the morning of a race, a spectator came into the building and asked a man, who had been there the whole week, what disruption he could do to get arrested. <laughs> the boarder told him to kick in the glass of a showcase containing goods placed on exhibition in the garden. He did it. The hint proved a valuable one. The citizen was arrested with great promptness, 
and could not find words to express his gratitude to the border. The police at time liked to show their muscle by causing their own disruptions. Police Captain Riley called on manager Frank W. Hall and warned him that he was violating the law in furnishing music and selling liquor together. And manager Hall concluded that there was more money in the drinks than in the music, and the band was dismissed. In another instance, the 12-year-old son of Henry Vaughn of England came out on the track to run six miles in under an hour. The crowd cheered, but Captain Clubber Williams, always wanting to show that he was in control, quote, stalked over the sawdust with his club tucked under the arm and laid his hand on the boy's shoulder and said, That boy is underage. He must stop. More and more, the events became more unruly. The New York Press noticed and wrote, The walking mania has reached a queer stage. The halls have in many cases been turned into drinking places, and loafers spend their nights there in boisterous fun. Give us a rest. At 1.30 a.m. of a race, a Mr. Walden wanted free tickets from the race manager. When the manager replied gruffly, the man struck him with his fist, flooring him. Police took the man into custody. At 3 a.m., there was another small disturbance. The only female in the audience emitted a sort of wail. She was carried out. Nobody seems to know the cause of the wail, nor the name of the wailer. At times, spectators would be amusing spectacles for the runners to watch. Frequently, people thought it was cheaper to sleep in the building rather than go home and pay for another day's admission. One evening, a boy and his best girl settled in to slumber in their box and soon were snoring. Runners thought it was funny to try to hit them with bits of the track as they ran by. Finally, the boy moved a bit, causing the girl to slide off him. She tumbled off the guardrail of the box and down upon the floor of Madison Square Garden, going head over heels in the maneuver. Of course, this awakened her, and her escort realized the situation instantly. He reached over the railing and grasped her hand, pulling her back to the box, the crowd of spectators howling with laughter. The two quickly left the garden, quote, followed to the door by a crowd of hoodlums. Pickpockets went to work while others slept. A fight between two spectators occurred. John Clute had been the most dedicated fan, who had been there every day and night, never leaving. He ate at the in-house restaurant and slept for a while each night in the back chairs. On the Wednesday night, someone stole his pocket watch while he was sleeping. He recognized that man, Charles H. Thompson, who had been sitting close to him on the night of the theft. He immediately accused him of having taken the watch. Hard words followed, resulting in blows. Clute proved too much for the man. And finally, the stranger admitted that he had taken the watch, but it was beyond recovery. Clute had him arrested at the station house. The watch was eventually returned to Clute. Sideshows at times were a distraction for the runners. During an 1881 six-day race in the garden, a five-mile race involving 20 boys lined up on the track. John Hughes, currently in second place, who had been in an ugly temper all day, became enraged and threatened to leave the building. The other regulars worked through the crowd of boys and jogged on uncomplainingly. On your marks, get set. 
As the sprint took place, half the competitors, including Hughes, went to their huts until it was all over. Fights between runner crews were a risk for these events. In 1884, American Patrick Fitzgerald's trainer objected that a Mr. Mitchell was coaching Englishman Charles Rowell, even though he was not on his team as a regular handler or trainer. It was said that he had no business being on the track with Rowell. Mitchell walked into the enemy's camp to explain matters when a war of words occurred and signs of a rattling sparring match grew promising. Partisans of both sides edged up. All were looking for a fight. It was reported that some of Fitzgerald's henchmen had procured brick bats to be used as ammunition. The referee requested Mitchell to return to the English camp. Policemen were placed on guard. The danger of any serious disturbance was averted. Thank goodness we don't have these type of disturbances during most ultras today. Stay tuned for more ultra-running Stranger Things. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.